Do you think it's fun just to look out of the window? I know I do. Oftentimes when I'm sitting at dinner, I just stare out the window at the yard behind us. But about two months ago, Karen and I had the wonderful opportunity to be in a home at the beach. And in this particular home, out one window, we had a beautiful view of the ocean. And out of another window, we had a very nice view of the intercoastal waterway. Now, that is a unique thing to be able to see both of those from the same vantage point. And I spent a lot of time that week looking out of those windows at the beautiful creation that God has made. Now, what if I told you that there was a way that we could look out of a window into glory itself? You might say, I would like to know where that window is. Well, today we're going to look at one of those windows. It's found in the pages of Scripture. It's in the account of what we refer to as the transfiguration. And we find it in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 28 uh, and reading down through verse 36. Listen as I read the Word of God. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said." As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my Son, my Chosen One. Listen to Him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Thus ends the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful to have windows like this one into your glory, into the truth of your goodness, of your kindness, and of your desire to deliver us from our greatest peril. I pray, O Lord, that you will send your Spirit even now, that the one who listens will understand and believe and be changed, and that you will use me as I speak your word to enable us all to see and meditate upon the glory of Jesus Christ that is revealed here. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as we look at this text, I want us to look at it really under three headings. First of all, I want us to look at the foretaste that we see in this passage. Secondly, I want us to see the fulfillment uh, in this passage. And lastly, I want us to see the endorsement that we see in here. First of all, I want us to see uh, this foretaste. Now, what do I mean by foretaste? Well, we remember these perhaps at the warehouse stores of old 
before COVID when you could walk around the store and there would be people down at the end of aisles. And there in front of them, they would have a tray of foods and they would have a box, you know, of that food right beside it to let you know what it was. And they would say, would you like a sample? Now, what is a sample? Well, it's a foretaste of the kind of enjoyment you would get if you bought that box or can or barrel or whole crate of food that they are giving you a sample of. So that sample is a foretaste. In this passage, we see this beautiful foretaste of the disciples and of our enjoyment of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, I want us to see this, first of all, as we just look at what happens. Luke says that the face of Jesus changes and that his clothing became dazzling white. What is he describing? He's describing the physical appearance of Jesus changing so that his true nature would be revealed to his disciples. Now, what is the true nature of Jesus? The true nature of Jesus is that he is God. He is God the Son who has lived in eternity in the perfect enjoyment of God the Father and God the Spirit's presence. They enjoyed fellowship forever. And he had glory that was unmatched in all of the universe. And we know as we continue to read the story of Scripture that it is a glory that he returns to after his resurrection when he ascends into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God. In other words, this picture for the disciples and those of us who are studying it is a foretaste of the reality of Jesus. Now, why is that so important? I think because oftentimes, as I'm sure if you've listened before, uh, I mention all the time, and that is that we often get a very narrow and incomplete idea about who Jesus is. We focus perhaps on his teaching or on his miracles or or on his uh, suffering, and all of these things are true and wonderful things to focus on. But we look at them in a segmented way. We don't look at the whole picture. Here the disciples are seeing the true nature of Jesus, that he is even more than just a man, that he is a man who is God in the flesh, and he has glory that emits from him. This is uh, so sweet and encouraging to us. Now, why is it encouraging? Well, it's encouraging because we want to remember the glory of Jesus so that it might inspire our worship, that is, the acknowledgement of his worth and value, that he is the glorious one. But also, it's a foretaste that encourage us about what we will experience for all of eternity. For when at the end of this life or at the end of this world, when we encounter Jesus, it will be a Jesus in his full glory, the kind of glory that uh, Peter, James, and John had a foretaste of on this mountain. That's so important to us. Secondly, I want us to understand that this foretaste was a needed encouragement, uh, especially at the time uh, that this was happening. Now, if you were with us last week or the week before, you'll know we've been talking about the previous passages. And in them, 
uh, Peter had correctly identified that Jesus was the Christ of God, that is the anointed king that God would send to make all things right. And then Jesus immediately started talking about the inevitability, the necessity of his suffering, of his death, and of his resurrection. And if that were not enough, he then turned to his disciples and he said, anyone who follows me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. That's heavy stuff that Jesus was going to suffer and die was heartbreaking, I'm sure. To know that to follow Jesus means that we need to be willing to die for him as we follow him, that is weighty. And so it's after this, Luke says it's about eight days. The other gospel writers say uh, that it is uh, six days after those heavy conversations that Peter, James, and John get to see this foretaste of the glory of Jesus. What a great encouragement to them to know that even though Jesus and perhaps, and as we know from history, they themselves will suffer greatly and even lose their lives for the sake of Jesus and the good news of the gospel, that there was a glorious future, a glorious future for Jesus and a glorious future uh, with Jesus. Now, I think we see this in a way when we see that Moses and Elijah come, which we'll talk about more in just a second. But right now, I just want us to see another foretaste that should be an encouraging to you and to me. And that is, yes, we will enjoy Jesus in his glory for all eternity, which should be a, a great uh, cause of excitement in our lives. But also, in the presence of Moses and Elijah, at the very least, we should be reminded that our future is an eternal future with him, that we will be able to be with him and be together in his presence. Now, that's a great encouragement, especially to people who've lost a loved one, maybe even over the last year or the last week or month. It's also an encouragement to those of us who will lose people to know that it is not the last time we will see them. Because of texts like this, we know because we have seen this foretaste that we will be with them when we're all with Jesus together. What a great encouragement. So that's the foretaste I want us to look at. Secondly, I want us to talk about fulfillment. You see, there is a dialogue that's going on between Moses and Elijah, and there's also a image or a picture of their presence with Jesus that I want us to see this theme of fulfillment in and through. First of all, I want us to see in the very presence of uh, Moses and Elijah that, that God is drawing the disciples and our attention to a very important truth, and that is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that the scriptures have said. Everything that the Old Testament, which remember, for James, John, uh, and Peter, and for Jesus, the Bible was the Old Testament. And Moses, of course, was the giver of the law, the Torah. And he was the most significant writer of the Old Testament. And so for that reason, we see that uh, he really represents the Old Testament. And Elijah 
uh, also represented the great prophets in the Old Testament. So here, just by being in their presence, we are seeing a fulfillment of this central truth that Luke really wants to underscore for us in his book, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scripture. What kind of fulfillment? Uh, well, for instance, we see that in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 18 and verse 15, this was a promise uh, that uh, God made through Moses. Uh, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And just in case we're prone to miss this marvelous pointer, if you will, uh, to Jesus being the fulfillment of this promise. Notice when God comes and speaks, which we'll get to more in a minute, it says, uh, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him as a reminder that Moses said one greater than Moses would come and you need to make sure to listen to him. So here God uses that exact language. You need to listen to him to point to Jesus as the fulfillment. And two, Elijah, we know as a great prophet, but I want us to remember that at the very end of the Old Testament, that there is a mention of Elijah that's important for us uh, to remember. It was the word, essentially, uh, that uh, the Old Testament ends on, at least in our version of the Bible. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great an awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what is that telling us? It's saying that Elijah represents this uh, need to prepare for what we call the eschaton, that is the end of time. We need to prepare for the end of this world, for the beginning of the world that God intends, the new heavens and the new earth. Elijah represents that forward-looking anticipation. So here when Moses and Elijah with him are with him, we see a fulfillment not only of the prophet who's greater than Moses, but we see the fulfillment of all that Elijah was preparing people for, this importance of the end. But I want us to see a second thing uh, that uh, we see this pointer of fulfillment in this text. Uh, you see it in verse 31. Look at what they're talking about. It says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Well, first of all, I'll point out that this word accomplish at Jerusalem, that word accomplish uh, could also be translated fulfill, which is where I get the idea of fulfillment. But I want us to back up just a few words where it says spoke of his departure. That word in the original language is exodus. And so it would read, and they spoke of his exodus, which he was about to fulfill at Jerusalem. Now that language, to someone who is familiar with the Old Testament, to someone who loved the Old Testament, has a very important message. The exodus, of course, was the main deliverance of God's people in the Old Testament. If you've ever done one of those reading projects where you read through the whole Old Testament, you, you know that the theme of the deliverance of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and into the promised land is a theme that recurs over and over and over. Why? 
because it's a story of God delivering his people from captivity. So what do they mean by the fact that Jesus would fulfill or accomplish an exodus at Jerusalem? It's referring to an even greater deliverance. You see, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt certainly enabled them to enjoy the promised land, certainly enabled them to understand what it means to have a God who is their God and they as his people. But here, the the exodus that this passage is pointing us to is a deliverance from the fear of death from the guilt of sin, from the consequences of all of our rebellion against God. Jesus is going to bring a deliverance from our critical enemies. And in the future, when he returns, he will finally deliver us from all of the evil that is outside of us and that is inside of us. This is, of course, the Exodus the New Testament continues to tell us about. And we know this is what it's talking about because it says it's going to happen in Jerusalem. How did Jesus accomplish that Exodus? By going to Jerusalem and there being judged as a blasphemer and a sinner and being hung on a cross in the place of people like me, a blasphemer and sinner. And he rose from the dead to show that indeed he had paid all that was necessary to deliver me and deliver you and deliver everyone who believes in him from the consequences they should get for their sin. This is a tremendous, world-changing exodus, which is not just for Jews, but for everybody. And this is the fulfillment that this passage is pointing us toward. But lastly, I want us to see this endorsement, this endorsement. Now, what do I mean by that? First of all, we see this interesting response of Peter. It says here that uh, they had, uh, they were very, very sleepy. And, and I, I like the language that they're uh, using there. Uh, it, it says that um, now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. Have you ever been heavy with sleep? Oh, that happens to me sometime. It almost feels as though sleep has reached up and grabbed me and is pulling me in. And there's no escape. I just get drowsier and drowsier until I am out like a light. And so this was happening to Peter, James, and John. And it was while this is happening that the appearance of Jesus uh, it uh, comes and his glory shines and they see Elijah and Moses. And so what, what does Peter say? He says, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one uh, for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, what kind of thing is Peter talking about? Well, to really understand this, we need to understand an Old Testament Old Testament uh, commanded festival called the Festival of Booths. And what is a festival of booth? Well, it is a time once a year uh, when uh, the people of Israel would build basically uh, what we would call a tent, or really it was a, a handmade booth uh, that they would stay in uh, for this entire festival. And why did they do that? They did it to remember that God had delivered them from Egypt and provided for them uh, between Egypt and the Promised Land. And it was a time for them to look forward 
to when God would ultimately deliver his people. So in a way, the the festival of booths must have been just what popped into Peter's mind because here he sees Moses, who God used to actually accomplish uh, that deliverance from Egypt and who was the one who announced the provision of God. And we see Elijah who said that we need to be ready for the end of times or the eschaton that's coming. And so it must have just reminded him of the festival of booths. But of course, his confusion, which we notice in uh, Luke's comment here, not knowing what he said, is the way he talks about Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. He says that they need to have three booths, three tents set up, as though they were on the same level. And then we see God's endorsement, this endorsement that corrects that misunderstanding. First of all, we see that it comes in a cloud. Now, they were on a mountain, and you may be saying to yourself, wait a second, clouds float by the tops of mountains all the time. But clearly, this was a different kind of cloud. How do I know that? Because it says that they were afraid as they entered the cloud. You see, if we go back to the Old Testament, we will see that God often appears in a cloud. It's the way he manifested himself to the children of Israel as they went across uh, the wilderness. It was the way he communicated his presence on Mount Sinai, where Moses went and received uh, the law of God. It was this cloud that descended upon the tabernacle when it was built to show God's presence coming in. This cloud was a visible manifestation of God the Father's glory joining there on that mountain. Now, in uh, C.S. Lewis's book, The Weight of Glory, he talks about the two kinds of ways to understand glory. The first is brightness, which we see in this story. Uh, A brightness, uh, clothes that uh, shine Uh, that become dazzling white. So we see that brightness. But then when this cloud comes, we see the second kind of uh, glory that C.S. Lewis describes, and that's weightiness. It just feels heavy, and that's what happens. The presence of God comes in the cloud, and it causes this uh, awe-filled reaction uh, from the disciples that were there. But then we hear the endorsement. It wasn't enough that God himself came in his glory to be present in that moment, but then he had something to say. And it sounds a lot like what he had to say in some ways at the baptism of Jesus. But then if we go back and look, we'll see that God said that just to Jesus. Here, he says it for the disciples and for us. What does he say? This is my son, my chosen one, Listen to him. Now, we've already talked about the listen to him, pointing back uh, to Exodus uh, chapter, excuse me, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. But I want us to see this expression, my chosen one, my chosen one. What does that mean? Well, it refers to Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1. There, uh, God talks about a chosen one. What does he say? Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the beginning of what's called the the suffering servant passage. 
And he says that God says there that he has chosen this servant. Here he says, this is my, uh, my son, my chosen one. This is the one. He's endorsing not only Jesus in his glory, but he is endorsing Jesus as he fulfills his exodus, which is the deliverance of people from sin and death and ultimately to an eternity of joy with him. He says, this is my chosen one. Now, I think part of the reason, I don't know, only God knows, but many writers believe that part of the reason that God comes in his cloud of Shekinah glory, and he speaks this clear word referring to Isaiah 42.1, is that he is endorsing not only the glory of Jesus, but the necessity of his suffering so that no one is confused. That is so critical for us to understand. God had planned the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It was not an accident. He didn't want the disciples to get tripped up. He doesn't want us to get tripped up. But lastly, I want us to see at the end of the story, notice what happens. Uh, And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Do you notice what happens after the visible manifestation of Jesus' glory and the cloud manifestation of the glory of God the Father? When it leaves, what do they see? Jesus alone. You see, John uh, says it this way. In John uh, 1, it says that uh, the, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word uh, was with God, and the Word was God. And later on, he says, and the Word took on flesh and came and tabernacled or dwelt among us. You see, Jesus is the last one there because he is the abiding presence of God here in this world. What a tremendous encouragement. It's an encouragement because God saw our suffering. He saw our need, and he came to share our suffering, to understand and to bear our temptations without sin so that he might be, as the uh, letter to the Hebrews says, our great high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses. Isn't that a tremendous encouragement? Maybe you are suffering now. Maybe you are sick or hurting. Maybe you are struggling with a chronic injury. Maybe you're struggling with something emotional or something that is difficult, or maybe, as we mentioned earlier, the loss of someone you care about. And you say, where is God in my suffering? He is here with us. And where he is, there is the presence of God. He cares. He has come, and he will be with me and with you in the midst of our suffering. And one day, When he returns, he will deliver us from it. This passage is given so the disciples and us will not lose heart in the face of the coming suffering. And it's also given so that we will not lose heart in the face of suffering even now today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so good to us. 
to show us a window into your glory is a sweet treat. And it is a great encouragement to know that suffering and death do not take you by surprise, but that you have a plan for each suffering and each death, and that you have in your grace not only planned, but you have become present to us in Jesus. May we love him, believe him, and enjoy him, and see in him your presence with us as we wait for his bodily return to make all things right, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us as we study God's Word. What a great, encouraging passage. I hope you were encouraged. If you were, please let us know. Uh, drop us a note or an email or a text. The information is there on your screen to get in touch with us. We always love hearing from you. We always love uh, having you leave with a blessing. This blessing uh, comes from Numbers chapter 6. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.